If you're not familiar with the Bible, the book of Colossians is actually a letter. It was a letter written to a church. And if I had to give you a, a test of where Colossae might be, uh, I'm not sure if you could guess, but it's actually in modern-day Turkey, a place where there are very, very few Christians today. And the, the Christians that are there are, are of kind of a different sect. And so think about in your mind if you were living in Turkey today. You would be facing all sorts of difficulties, and the Christians in Colossae were facing many of those same difficulties. And as this letter opens up, we call it a book, uh, there were a number of challenges, but one of the biggest challenges was the Apostle Paul, inspired by God, was writing to this church and saying, hey, you really need to mature in your faith. Just as you receive Christ, you're to walk in Him, growing up, rooted in Him. The challenge, though, was this. The church was making up all sorts of different things in how they chose to do that. Some were relying on a myth of the local culture. Others were going back to the Old Testament law and Judaism. And there were various different backgrounds within that community. At that time, they were living in a nation called Rome. Uh, it was under Roman rule. It wasn't a city back then. And in Rome, there were also lots of slaves, not as you think of today, but when Rome would go in to conquer a nation, they would take the, the top echelon of people and br either bring them back to Rome or they would resettle them in other countries. It was a way in which they could uh, colonize that nation and it, they would integrate cultures. So here in the final verses we're about to read, there are individuals of varying backgrounds, slave, free, Scythian, barbarian, Jewish. And what you're going to notice, the one thing that ties them all together is not going back under the law and trying to make everyone uh, Judaizers. And it was not just simply uh, these myths locally. It was Christ. And not just Christ, but it was maturing in them. So I don't know what your background is. Maybe you're from the country or from the city or from Oregon or, or like me, I've lived in a number of places. How you identify with, your, with this church, but where we ought to be and hopefully where we're going is that we ought to look around and see Christ reflected in each of our lives in our speech, in our actions, in our giving, in our service, in our hearts. And the way in which you get there is what we're going to discuss this morning. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3, it says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, the idea those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior have actually trusted in him. And when you do that, the Bible says you're born again. You're given a new heart and a new life. And so if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Now that's somewhat broad and it's very difficult if you can imagine just going out this uh, coming day after lunch, after we get out of here, you're going to lunch. You're thinking lunch. Your, your stomach's growling. It may already be growling. That's okay. You're going to have to suffer a little bit. But it's hard when you have this broad perspective. Okay, I, I kind of know I really shouldn't seek the things in this world. And I do want to seek the things that are above. But what does that really look like? Where? Well, let's, let's get into this a little bit. He says, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, 
Set your minds. So this is how you begin to do it. It is something that you do internally. It's nothing that I can do. It's nothing that our worship team can do. It's nothing that your small group leaders can do or your life group leaders. It's nothing that your parents can do. It's nothing that your neighbors or friends can do. You and you alone can do this. He says, set your minds on things above, not on things of earth. And by the way, we're about to understand the reason why you can do this is by the power of the Holy Spirit, you've been set free, according to Romans, from the law of sin and death. And so you now have the ability. Before then, we are children of wrath. We are individuals that don't seek God. But once the Holy Spirit is indwelling in you, you now have the ability to choose to either follow God or not. And so in verse 3, he says, For you have died, and this is the, the highest level of, of recognition of this world has nothing for me. Yes, I have to live in it, and I'm going to serve the Lord in it, and I'm going to share and be a light for him in it. But as far as the desires and pleasures of this world, there's something far better. And the text goes to the point of, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, so Christ is our life appears, the Bible promises that someday Jesus will return and you will see him. And if you've already died, you will come with him. If you have died before uh, he returns, you will, you, as Jesus says to the thief on the cross, you will be with me today in paradise. And the Bible use, uses all sorts of figurative and amazing language to describe what this temporary abode of heaven is like. But eternally, we will dwell with Christ and reign with him on a new heavens and new earth. And so our, he is our life and he will appear. And when Christ who appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And that is the perspective that you have to come to the table with. If we don't, quite honestly, I don't know what's captured your heart and mind right now, but it may be your garden. It might be. It might be your hobby. It might be your vacation coming up or the vacation you just got back from. It might be troubles. It might be relationships, whatever it is. But this is where Scripture says we are to go to. This is the perspective in which we grow in Christ. We have to set our minds. We have to seek the things that are above. And this is what this means. We spent a great deal of time last week in verse 5. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And we described what it means to put to death. It means to be led by the Spirit. It means to be directed by the Spirit. And again, the, that specifically means we now, through the power of the Spirit, have the ability to set our minds on the things that are above. Romans 8.13 says this, Put to death the deeds of the body, Romans 8, 5. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. So again, it starts with your mind. You now have the ability, and there's something in you. Even though that you're born again, there are fleshly or earthly desires. And here's where I want to pause for a second. I want you to take out the bulletin or take out your phone or take out something to write with. If you have a pen, a piece of paper, or if you are completely uh, paper-free and, and you've moved on to technology, take out your phone, some, go someplace where you can type into it. 
I literally want you typing into it if you can, even if you have to just send a text to yourself. This is the interesting thing. I've discovered that when it comes to Christ, people think about church. They think about Bible studies. But the very first step in growth is something kind of odd. It, it, is, it almost goes against your natural inclination. I want you to think about whatever, and, and we won't even say you, because someone might be looking at your paper and you're going to be embarrassed if they're sitting next to you. I want you to think about what is earthly or fleshly in people's hearts or minds. What would that mean to you? Have you ever consciously thought about it? And, and do you have the ability to even write out maybe a list of four or five things? And sometimes we think about, well, um, murder, stealing. But I, I want you to think about what precipitates that? What comes before that? What is it in our hearts and minds that we ought to be thinking about so we are aware of how to, that we even need to put something to death? What would that be? I've, I've listed six options. Can you think of something in people's hearts or minds that they ought to put to death? It, I've actually asked this question to a few people this week, and it was very difficult for them to come up with stuff. They might hit two or three things like anger or worry, something along those lines, but they quickly seem to run out of categories or ideas. It's very interesting because this is step number one in what it means to seek the things that are above. And if you can't do this, then what you tend to do, or not you, but all of us sometimes, we skip this step. And if you skip this step, this stuff will tend to remain in your mind and your heart. And you just cover over that stuff with other stuff. But it remains there. And we discussed this last week. This is how you end up with a grouchy, mean old deacon or if you have a businessman coming to church and you walk into church and you recognize him because you've had business dealings with him and you recognize that he's utterly um, harsh and greedy and untrustworthy in his business dealings and you're thinking, how could that possibly be? He actually teaches a Bible study at that church. Well, this is how. He thought that he just needed to add information and Christianity isn't that. It is relational. And this is how you develop that relationship where you grow in Christ. You have to get rid of some stuff. So I've talked long enough. Do you have at least four or five things down? Let's see a show of hands. Did you find that it was difficult? Show of hands. Did you find that it was easy? Wow. All right. Well, we have some people that are very self-aware here because the majority of you said it was easy. Now, I want you to think about this. The individuals in your life that do not know Christ as their Lord and Savior, do you think they would find this easy? It's a little tough. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he begins the list. In this passage of Scripture, there are three groups of five. It is a literary device, we believe. We don't know what it's called, but it is very specific. 
He uses three groups of five. The first two groups are what you're to put to death. The, first, the third group is what you're to put on. This is you not, not unique within this passage of Scripture. We'll read in, uh, also Galatians 5.19 here in just a minute where you see a longer list. So where I'm going with this is this list is not exhaustive. It just highlights for a very specific purpose. And he jumps right into it. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Continuing in verse 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So let's dig into this just a little bit. First of all, sexual immorality. Uh, in Greek, which this was, uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And when you go to figure out what a Greek word is, you, you go to what we would call a dictionary in English, but it's called a lexicon in Greek. So some of the best lexicons define this word as simply this. What is sexual immorality? It is the physical act of unlawful sexual practice. That's what it is. It, it's not, we're not in the mind here. He jumps straight to the end result of a decision that we make in our minds and hearts if we allow that earthly um, part of us to control us. So sexual immorality begins in the mind, but it does end in physical action. And that, that's actually very important these days because here in the United States, we're in a culture that is going that direction in all sorts of ways. And I won't get into all the details because we still have some little ones here in the service with us, but it is not God's desire. Sex within marriage is a blessing. It is created by God and, and we are to honor him in that, both men and women. But it is not when we twist that honoring to God. It is called earthly or fleshly desires, and the Bible says we are to crucify that part of us. In order to do that, you have to be aware of it. And it's really tough. I know men who are just out there, they're doing whatever, they're on Amazon, on the internet, and just ads pop up, uh, emails, all sorts of craziness that just pop up. As a matter of fact, I know a lot of men who are just simply no longer reading the Bible on their phones because it's so tempting and, and so such an a avenue to begin down that path. So they're just using a hard copy of, of God's Word. And it, there's just this rebellion in a lot of men's life because it's such a struggle. As a matter of fact, of the top 10 websites in the entire world, multiple websites in that top 10 are pornography websites. It's so prevalent. So if you don't think this is an issue, the stats reveal otherwise. Sexual immorality. But then he, he goes backwards. Impurity. What, is, what does impurity mean? Because it seems like these are all tied closely together. And in some cases, the Greek is used as a synonym. But here, the best lexicons describe this as a state of moral corruption. It covers any sexual or moral depravity. Impurity. Put it to death. Passion, uncontrolled sexual lust. In Romans, it's used of dishonorable passions in reference to homosexuality. So if you know of individuals, or maybe you yourself, you're trying to walk this fine line, 
No, sex is meant for husbands and wives. That's it. A man and a woman joined together for a life. Anything outside of that is not honoring and glorifying to God. It is sinful and is to be put to death. Passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Evil desire, any sort of craving, lust, or desire that is outside the will of God. That pretty much covers all of us, right? At some point, we've had evil desires. If nothing else, I know you drive in Boise occasionally, and someone's going to cut you off, right? And you're like, I can't believe that. Or maybe you're the individual where the, the traffic is going from three lanes down to two, and you stay in that third lane as long as you possibly can, and you make everyone else wait as you cut in. I don't know, but some of you have had some evil desires at some point, right? I'm not the only one. But here's the deal. This is what's so hard. You, you both want to put it to death, but at the same time, you have to be aware of it, and it has to be conscious in your mind so you can put it to death. It's kind of like greed. You have to be aware of greed, but you don't want to be greedy. The idea is simply this. As you're going along, you have to catch these things at the front end of it. The Bible describes taking your thoughts captive to obey Christ. The question is, do we do this? Or do we just let our minds and hearts run amok because no one else gets to see that part of us? I promise you, no one just walks, gets up, leaves the house, and just accidentally commits sexual immorality. It started somewhere. It started in the mind. No one just gets up and just gets incredibly angry the moment they get out of bed. It starts in the mind or heart. And the crazy thing is, this can begin to captivate you where it's just your second nature. This is what we're dealing with, the heart and mind. So today, you just did certain things and you really didn't have to think about it, right? It's second nature to you. You just jumped in the shower when you got up, right? Is that second nature to your six-year-old? I bet you a lot of you were like, where was Jesus at last night when I was fighting my six-year-old to make him take a bath? Because showers aren't second nature to my six-year-old. He wants to remain dirty all day. Or your grandkids. There are certain things that just aren't second nature to some people. And this gets really, really important. I don't know about you, what your life is like. Uh, maybe you spend a lot of time here in the church, in ministry, your, your friends are Christian, and that's kind of becoming more my life. Uh, I don't necessarily like that because I love to share the gospel. I love to develop relationships with unbelievers. But this past week, because I get to do less and less of that, I try to watch some videos on YouTube and different things of atheists and unbelievers and the conversation with Christians and what unbelievers are thinking. And I had the opportunity to listen to a psychologist who is not a believer, uh, but he is very familiar with the Bible, and he's went down the liberal road of interpreting the Bible, which is really sad. It just can basically mean anything to him, and he makes it up, his meanings. But he's very aware of what the Bible teaches. And someone had asked him, do you believe in God? 
And this is a man that is a multimillionaire, written, sold millions of books at this point, has millions of views uh, on YouTube, ma many followers. Some of you don't know what that means, but he is very well known. And, and he speaks a lot, but he got very quiet. He was silent for a little bit. And he almost started to tear up, and his, and his voice was, was cracking. And he said this, he goes, I live as though I, there is a God, but I'm afraid to say that I believe in God because anyone who believes in God ought to live that way. And I see nobody living that way. You see, even as an unbeliever, he doesn't really care about church. He doesn't care about Bible studies. Those should help us live. But if we're not living out our faith, the world sees it. And it's super, it's impossible to live as a mature believer unless you begin to deal with the heart and mind. If you just coast, you will never grow in Christ. And people will not see you living something that you really can't because you haven't made this decision to put off the old self. This is critical, what we're talking about here. It might be uncomfortable. You might be in, uh, have visited churches where they don't even talk about sin. But the Bible, as you can see here, says that it's imperative that we not only recognize sin, but we know what to do with it. And it's literally to put it to death. At some point in your day, this has to hit your calendar. It has to hit your mind. It has to hit mine. And I'm the worst. I'm guilty of just getting up and running, just going throughout the day. Galatians 5.19 through 21 lays out the list like this. Now the works of the flesh are evident so as the thoughts and the passions in your life begin to play out, this is what you should expect to see if you have not put this off. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, pretty much the same list, but then it goes on. Sorcery, enmity, strife. Anyone been to a family reunion lately? Jealousy, fits of anger rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Wow, hitting home here. Drunkenness. Not even a drunk, but drunkenness. Just a pattern of getting drunk. Orgies and the things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He goes so far as to say, anyone that is involved in these things is a liar. It's not as though you lose your salvation. Scripture is very clear there. It is you were never saved in the first place. Because we know those who have died with Christ will put to death and set their hearts and minds on these things. Now, this is not to say that we do not sin. 1 John is very clear on this. But there's a difference, and in 1 John it makes it clear in this way as well. 
we do sin, but God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we go to him and confess those sins. However, there's a difference between that and walking in darkness or living in darkness. Those that are living in darkness, there is no battle. There is no attempt. It is just someone who is giving lip service to God and living according to their earthly desires. So as you can see, there's a lot to work on. I don't know about you, but quite frankly, I don't have this list memorized. But don't you think, can you imagine that maybe your teenager or, or some individuals in your life, if you were trying to take a new believer and set them down, wouldn't you think this would be a good first step in discipling someone? Have you ever even had that opportunity? Like someone gets saved and you're like, all right, what do I do now? And you're like, well, go to church. <laughs> That's a good place. Or open your Bible, read it, pray. We, we give them activities. But have, have you ever heard of anyone giving them these scriptures or this list? This is where you start. Kill this stuff in you. I've never heard anyone talk like that. And I'm a pastor. <laughs> First step, discipleship number one, kill this stuff. You're like, huh? That's, I mean, just think about it. What would this church look like and feel like if that's how we lived? You essentially would have no problems when you came to church. None. Everyone would not only say, I'm doing great, but they wouldn't be lying at that point. <laughs> and we'll get to that in just a minute. Verse 6 of Colossians chapter 3 says, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Did you notice there's nothing on this list that describes armed robbery, murder, rape, drug use, any of the stuff that we typically associate with bad stuff. And you would think, all right, the wrath of God is coming because of that stuff. You know the stuff that other people do. No, the wrath of God is coming because of this stuff. Romans 2.5 says this, but because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. At that point in Romans, he's referring to unbelievers. So, this isn't just a good way to live. This is a serious real decision about life. Life begins and it will end, but it won't end with just this physical life. The Bible says there is a day of judgment coming for all mankind. And for some, it will be a great and glorious day. For others, they will see and experience the divine wrath of God. It describes it in ways of such as the lake of fire, weeping and gnashing of teeth, utter 
darkness in the midst of fire, however that looks. It describes all of eternity in that manner for those that have rejected the gracious gift of God and chose to live according to their own desires. Very, very serious. Yes, God loves the whole world, but there is something called justice. And it's rarely spoken of in today's church. But there will be justice, not only experienced, but seen. And God desires no one to experience that, but he allows us to choose. Scary stuff. Verse 7, he reminds us, In these two you once walked, you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Here's the next five. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. These you must put away. Again, put to death, crucify, put away. Similar language, but the same idea. You have the decision to make in your life of what you're going to do and think. And it begins with your mind. Anger, described as fury or rage in some lexicons. Wrath means to move violently, rush along, passionate longing or anger. I love Patches the Wonder Dog. Many of you have met Patches the Wonder Dog, my house. Little, beautiful, cute dog. There are times where I would like to lay down some wrath on that dog. <laughs> really would. When I yell, come, and she takes off the other direction and just keeps going after ground squirrels. Very close to experiencing the wrath of Scott. Move violently towards that little dog. Malice. Evil, baseness. That was very interesting, just a baseness. Malice we think of as a, a hatred, but it's our lowest level of utter depravity, of baselessness. I, I had the honor of working with a um, ministry in Fort Worth for a short period of time, just as a volunteer for a few days, uh, and they dealt with the homeless and drug addicts. But I didn't realize this. The drug addicts actually have a class of people that are the lowest. And these individuals that not, are individuals that not even the crackheads will deal with. They're, they're utterly inhuman in their eyes. They've become so baseless that they will do, say, or think anything. They quit taking care of themselves. They quit bathing they, they literally act and behave like animals, worse than animals. That's baselessness. These things are what people are capable of doing. He says, put this away. Malice is where that begins. Slander, abusive speech, blasphemy, or defamation. Unless you've been slandered, you have no idea how horrible that is. But slander is not something that you can really even defend. It's wicked. Check yourselves in your speech. It is a horrible, horrible thing to do to slander someone. An obscene talk from your mouth. 
I have had people go round and round with me in ministry on this one, believe it or not. I'm like, really, you're a Christian and you're even going to argue about obscene talk. If it helps you, just use this as your definition. If I asked you to come up here and to speak from the pulpit, to just deliver a simple message out of God's word, how would you speak? Use that as a guideline on what you consider obscene talk. If you would say it from the pulpit, then you're good to go. But if you would even have a pause on whether to use a particular word from the pulpit, then don't use it. It's that simple. And that's hopefully not a legalistic standard, but it's just a very simple, practical way of thinking about people because everyone has different standards and we don't want to, according to Romans, give anyone cause to stumble. Do not let your speech cause others to stumble. One moment praising God and the next moment accidentally cursing and people, and you don't even think it's cursing, but in their eyes it is. Put these all away. Verse 9, and do not lie to one another, going back, oh, I'm great, I'm good, we're all good. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Don't lie. And put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So that's step number two, and we're going to go deep into that next week. But you put off, and then you put on. You have to do both. It doesn't work one at a time, or just one only. Here, and this is verse 11, this is where he's referencing back to those individuals that were appealing to the, the Jewish legal system or other things to try to grow in Christ. He says, here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. So that's kind of the mark, that is the mark actually, of what it means to truly grow. Are you growing in Christ or are you growing in religion? Are you growing in ministry or are you growing in Christ? People think I'm almost committing heresy when I sit down and I counsel them. I go, what are the priorities in life? Just list your top priorities. And they start at number one because they're talking to a preacher and they think, well, church. <laughs> like, no, it's God. Those two are different. And then number two, they go, okay, church. I'm like, no, you're married. It's your wife. <laughs> and then they're like, aren't you a pastor? I'm like, ministry is important. You're talking to a minister. But guess what? If I'm a poor husband, I'm disqualified from pastoral ministry. If you're a poor father, you are disqualified from ministry because your children are seeing this horrible man represent Christ. It's Christ, spouse, children. And then we get, start getting down to the body of Christ and people and ministry. So it's not um, simply ministry or religion there are lots of things that we do to try to build us up this this time this place is one of them but we have to remember the purpose is Christ it is Tom growing in Christ it is Kristen growing in Christ 
It is literally, markably different change. There is change in your life, both putting to death and putting on. If that is not happening, you are not growing. Simple as that. He closes with this, and we'll, we'll dig into this kind of a preview for next week. Put on then as God's chosen ones. Wow, I love that. Do you know that you're chosen, holy and beloved? All of the, the creator of all of creation loves you and des- desires for you to be set apart, holy. He says, put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This is what unbelievers are looking for. Christ reflected in your life. Real belief. Bearing with one another. You know, even in the midst of that, we're going to have differences. And guess what? Here's how we're to handle it. We're to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, hold your grudge for 20 years. No. Forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. They actually must ask, they must repent, ask for forgiveness, and you are to forgive them. Imagine that. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You do that, in verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Wow, you no longer have these earthly things ruling, but you have the peace of Christ, to which indeed you are called in one body. If you're sitting here today and you're like, I really don't have peace. I have a lot of anxiety. I've tried the ministry peace and I'm kind of backing out of it or I've quit it altogether and this is about as much as you're going to get out of me, Scott. Don't blame the church. Don't blame ministry. Ask yourself, if you don't have that peace that you once had, why? Are you doing this? Are you consciously putting to death and putting on? If you don't do those things, you're not going to get the peace of Christ ruling in your hearts. You might have once have it, but it's no longer ruling to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. Wow. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Cool. As you do that, God's word that you've hidden in your heart begins to flow out, and it does so not only in word, but in song, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so as you do that, all your life is done for Christ. I've had people read that verse and think that's impossible. I can't go to work and think about two things at once. But what you don't realize is that personal discipline that you're doing in your heart and mind does change you and therefore you can think about Christ and that is a lens in which you see work, you see vacations, you see recreation and therefore you actually can live for Christ all day, every day. If that sounds crazy to you, I want to just pray for you right now that you begin to take those first steps and you begin to see how that is possible and you begin growing maybe for the very first time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your mercy, your forgiveness, uh, the people that you've put in my life. Please forgive me. Please help me to see the areas that I need to put to death in my own life. 
Help us to have open, honest conversations within marriages, within relationships, within the church body itself, so we can actually begin to grow. And as we put on compassionate hearts and love and, and the, just the, the purity that you desire for us, Lord, that it will be genuine and effective so we can have the peace that you, you promise is available to us, Lord. In Christ's name we pray this. Amen.